and welcome to a brand new BFBS podcast with myself, Alex Gill, and Ginny Carlin as we take a look at the world of military aviation. This is Mav Geeks. We are constantly searching the sky, searching apps to see what planes are. We just have no lives outside aviation, do we really, Alex? <laughs> no, not much. Well, so I am uh, uh, based at our radio station at RAF Bryce Norton. So I have a huge uh, back garden full of military aircraft. And I think my, my military aviation, I'm going to say obsession, probably started with my first job at BFBS, which was also with you, Ginny, uh, when we uh, were both out at, uh, on the rock of BFBS Gibraltar, because that is a pretty wild airfield, doesn't it? I mean, it's a pretty mental place to live and work when you're right next to it. Absolutely. I just love all the old military aircraft, the, the civilian stuff, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on, Mav Geeks. Absolutely. So um, on the podcast, uh, this series, we're going to be looking at some of the, the older aircraft in the Air Force, out-of-service aircraft that we uh, really like, or rather some that we like and some that we don't. And we're going to see how well they fare up and how much they have stood the test of time over the years since they went out of service and speak to some of the people who operated them and have worked on them during their Air Force careers. Buckle up and welcome to Mav Geeks. So I feel a slight fraud setting off on our first Mav Geek adventure, episode one, series one, by telling a bit of a spooky story, actually, Al. Well, when I say spooky, I mean, well, quite spooky, really. So I woke up at 3.30 one morning, and obviously the first thing I did was check flight radar because I am a Mav Geek, same as you. That's what we do. We don't have lives. You know, who needs sleep when you can look at planes? And... I noticed some really weird stuff going off the uh, coast of South Wales. And just have a look, Al. I'm sending to you now. Just have a look at okay. your phone. What have we got? Oh, I'm three screenshots. Some, yeah, yeah. Some screenshots come through. Can you see those three aircraft all, all really close to each other? Yeah, so that's uh, the Vesp- that's Vespina, the VIP air tanker Voyager with what looked like two typhoons. That's pretty normal. Yeah. At 3.30 in the morning. Okay. But they ain't typhoons, Al. Have what? a closer look, mate. Have a have a closer look what we've got there. Okay, I've scrolled along. Oh, okay. So Flight Radar has decided that the little icon is a typhoon. <laughs> but it's, that's definitely not. That's a one red arrow. Mm-hmm. And what's that one? What's that? A U2? Is that a U2? Yeah. Yeah. No way. Bono's flying it, mate. It's a U2, seriously. <laughs> so in the middle of the night, half three in the morning... I had to do like a bit of a reality, you know, head shaking moment. Is that for real? My eyes are quite bad at the moment. Am I completely Mr. Magoo on this? Having a look, the Vespina's there, just pootling around. One of the red arrows is there. It's like it's got lost. And then there's a U2. What's happening? You tell me, Al. I mean, you, you almost never see a, a red on its own, ever. It's very weird. I mean, they do fly around a bit on their own if one is going to be serviced or repaired or they need one of the spares to go somewhere. But it's un- it's not often you see it. The U two, I mean, <laughs> what's it doing there with Vespina? I mean, they, neither of those aircraft can be refueled midair. The the Hawks definitely can't. I don't think the U two can because it's you know was built in like 1947 or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not an actual date, but it's an old aircraft, you know. Um, so I mean, that's, oh, the fact that you spotted that though is bizarre what what led you to have a look over in that particular uh, corner of the map like you say the sort the fast jet icons i thought oh, uh, let's, yeah let's have a little look here because sometimes i don't know if you find this out but when you're looking at flight radar or one of the apps uh you, you do see a little 
something that takes your eye, especially over places like America, like Palm Springs and stuff, where it's a really dry climate and people keep their old military aircraft there that are just enthusiasts mm. keep them. I say just enthusiasts keep them now. I think it was a Boeing Stearman that was was kept at a Palm Springs airfield. That was out flying, just having a look round. That's like grandparents' age, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Do you find it like this is going to sound super nerdy, but calming to watch a flight, the flight radar app. It just something about seeing all those aircraft slowly just moving. It's it's like when people go, I just like to watch the ocean. To me, it's a bit like watching the ocean. It just is calming seeing all the aircraft flying around. I do. Uh, but once I've seen it, I can't stop watching it then. So I have to watch it to <laughs> the bitter end, Al. <laughs> to other people, it's like watching paint dry, but to us yeah, it's quite so interesting. I'm like, and then what I do is I like zoom in so it's really big, so it's flying really fast, and then zoom out again. Yeah, so yeah. Really slow. Oh, I do that as well. <laughs> I can't understand why I'm not married, Al, to be fair. You know what I mean? I do think that they must be putting the transponder on and off quite a bit. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, 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 fact, the fact that you can see uh, these aircraft here, and a lot of my friends who aren't into aviation geekery don't really uh, believe me when I say you can you can track flights on these apps quite easily. And they go, oh, really? Even, even military aircraft, you know, can you see what's going on at Bryce or, or wherever? And I'm like, yeah, here we go. And I show them, and I, you know. And in fact, one, you know, if we've got some friends over and one goes over my house, I'll say, look, here it is on the app. You can see it. They're like, is it not secret what they're doing? And I'm like, well, sometimes it is. If it is, then they won't be on there. You know, they know how to hide from these apps. And so over up pitting in the last few weeks in Afghanistan, there was that story in the news about one of the, the C-130s who had to rescue uh, a bunch of um, uh, SAS team members who were uh, in Afghanistan who were un- uh, un- under siege basically and so uh, in fact the article actually said that flight radar was tracking the the C130 on its way and then its transponder went off and they lost it and you know it did the the sneaky stuff that it had to to get in and, and go and do and the the really amazing uh, and slightly bizarre thing was that when you when you work somewhere like Bryce and anyone who's ever worked anywhere where suddenly the military that you're your friends with end up in the national news it's so humbling to know that people that you live and work with every day are suddenly off doing some pretty real dangerous, almost like TV level stuff that we forget is their actual job. And it's very humbling and, and pretty amazing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I know that we spoke about this in detail that being Mav geeks, we obviously watch all the aircraft that we can, but behind all that, the the work that our UK forces over Oppitting and ally forces have done, it's just mind-blowing. They've just done such an amazing job. And we were saying as well, a little bit off mic, about the capability of the C-17 and C-130. You were saying that almost every operational aircraft from Bryce, they were just chucking it up there. Absolutely. Everyone here at Bryce has been talking about the serviceability rate of the aircraft being not unprecedented because it's you know the engineers are, are trained to yeah. do that and to get the aircraft out. And it's amazing that the whole place responds so rapidly to something like this. Yeah. Uh, but everyone has just commended the amount of aircraft that were on just a constant rotation. I think 90, 19 aircraft were used uh, just constantly, which is a, a huge amount of aircraft over two weeks, just back and forth, back and forth. And there was that tweet from the MOD who said that the C7, one of the UK C-17s was chopped to the brim with evacuating people and it was three times its normal capacity. And like just the the skill of the loadmasters to mm. get 
that many people safely on board for a long trip back to the UK. You know, it's not just a short hop. It's, it's a long flight. It's not a short flight, as you very well know. So, um, it, and, and, and an uncomfortable position, you know, being sat in a Voyager is one thing. Being sat on the floor of a C-17 is quite another when you're crammed in. So keeping everyone safe and happy and healthy is was testament to just their incredible professionalism, I think. Amazing. Definitely. And seeing the different configurations of those aircraft. I mean, for us as complete math geeks, it was... It, it was incredible. The whole thing was incredible. Uh, just to really quickly go back to what you were saying about the SAS C-130 switching the transponder off. It's really funny because on the on the Falkland South Atlantic flight from Bryce, mm. uh, the air tanker do, I, I watched that quite often and I, I was in the Falklands for about two and a half years. And we used to watch the flight come down, uh, stop at Cape Verde. I think it's stopping yeah. at uh, Dakar now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, stopped at, at Cape Verde and set off again. And then got to a certain point just off the coast of Brazil where it would just disappear. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And at first we were all like, oh my God, she's gone, it's gone. <laughs> we would say, it's gone into the void. You yeah. know what I mean? So that was all the very elusive, mysterious place. And then it would show up again just, just off the coast of Brazil and we'd watch it. Yeah. And then it would get to a place and you could almost, you almost knew like by number where it would go off again into a void. And okay. There was just nothing in that area around. And that was the point, obviously, where the Voyager makes the decision whether it's going to carry on to the Falklands or if it's going to maybe mm. go to uh, Montenegro or Uruguay. And then it turns up again and goes, hello, I'm here. I'm, I'm almost there. <laughs> and, and the entire Falkland <laughs> Islands rejoice at once. Yeah, oh my gosh, absolutely, absolutely. Speaking of Voyagers, actually, today's podcast is going to be all about the predecessor to the Voyager, or at least one of them. Uh, a plane that uh, I know you're you're a huge fan of, Ginny, the TriStar, yes. um, <laughs> Lockheed TriStar. I mean, what what an aircraft! But the the point of this podcast is to to take a look at some old military aircraft that are no longer in service and uh, kind of just go through their history and speak to some people who we know that have operated on or been part of those aircraft's lives in the past and worked on them and you know had a large portion of their air force careers. Uh, operating the aircraft and and see which ones we think have, have stood the test of time or ones that maybe we're quite happy to have seen uh, end up on <laughs> end up on the runway at Kemble for one 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 last time uh, down at the, the Cotswold Airport and uh, we're going to be talking about TriStar today because I know it's an aircraft that over your BFBS career you've you've really loved I'm sure you've got a lot of facts up your sleeve about this aircraft I do I do Alex let me introduce to you the Lockheed L-1011 TriStar. Basically, it looked like a dolphin. The most beautiful curves imaginable <sighs> on this plane. It was Lockheed's answer to the wide-bodied McDonnell Douglas DC-10 and, of course, Her Majesty, the Mighty Queen of the Skies, a.k.a. the 747. Long live the Queen. Indeed. Uh, it had a seating capacity of up to 400 passengers. That's a lot of people. A huge wide-bodied aisle, two huge wide-bodied aisles, to be fair, and an average of 4,000 nautical miles uh, was its range. So the first Lockheed TriStar made its first flight on the 16th of November 1970, conceived during the mid-60s. It boasted unheard of luxuries, including glare-resistant windows, full uh, <laughs> closets. You could put all your clothes in the closets. They were so big. And also food lifts. So you could get your steak and your lamb mignon uh, from one galley to the next very easily. I heard it they served known... that on RAF flights. So, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly, exactly. Uh, it was known as the Whisper Jet as its engine configuration was so advanced that it reduced sound in the cabin. I love this, Al, and I know you will too, because you're like me, a bit of a stats geek. Eastern Airways L-1011 fleet had a remarkable 
in-service rate that reached 98% reliability. That is amazing. That is some, that is some going. That is some going. It had an ahead-of-its-time fly-by-wire automatic flight control system. Basically, can you imagine this? In the 70s, it's so 70s, I love it. Uh, the pilot would dial in an altitude, uh, set the course, and then just sit back, enjoy a coffee. Uh, this plane would literally land itself. That's how advanced it was. But let's talk about flaws, Al. I don't want to, but let's. Uh, the big flaws for it was that it cost a lot of money. And because of engine issues, the DC-10 was available first. So, of course, people were snapping that one up first. Uh, it ended production, though, on a high note with one pilot saying it was simply the most intelligent airliner ever to fly. I still love her. And luckily, it was snapped up for air-to-air refueling uh, duties by the RAF. It was indeed. I love her. And that's all I've got to say. <laughs> well, um, you love her. And I, I'm pretty sure that most people who operated on a TriStar during their Air Force career also love her. I, kn- I know a few, actually, who speak very good things about the TriStar. And uh, we're very fortunate, in fact, to uh, speak now on the podcast to the chief engineer with Air Tanker for the Voyager fleet at RAF Rise Norton, Dick Lorty, who used to be an engineer on 216 Squadron. So my so my first involvement with the Tricell, I'd just finished uh, 11 years on the Queen's flight, of which the last four years I spent as a crew chief, so literally flying around the world. Uh, and I thought, well, that's an amazing way of uh, earning a living. Uh, so when, you know, when the Queen's flight was disbanded, I was looking for a new aircraft to, to take me around the world on. And I had a look at the options that were available at the time. So we're talking about Hercules, VC-10, Nimrod, and then this big white shiny aircraft which looked better brighter shinier more powerful bigger than all the others you know and, and you know and most importantly the seats faced the right way around you know which was the, it was a, which is a significant advantage on then and lots of toilets you know which is always important <laughs> you know and uh, you know somebody somebody once said to me don't you know whatever you do don't work on an aircraft that doesn't have a toilet well you know, with the TriStar, you get a massive tick there because it's got lots of toilets. And I don't, do you remember, can you remember Penny Lane, Ginny? Can you remember the back of the aircraft used to have five toilets in a row? In yes. A sort of like yes, curved, in a sort of very aesthetically nice curved Penny Lane, as it was, as it was fondly known at the end. So, yeah, so it hit, so it hit the spot, really. Um, you know, it meant remaining in the Thames Valley Air Force, you know, because I came from Benson and obviously then made the short trip 16 miles the other way from Oxford to, to Bryce. Uh, and then started a six-year association with the TriStar and the wonderful 216 squadron that operated it. I've, I've just, I've never heard it referred to as the Thames Valley Air Force before. That's oh, quite yeah. funny. Yeah. Been, people, people have been in the Thames Valley Air Force for 40 years. They never leave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they never leave. You, know, you have to go to Bry's. People, people live and die there, don't they? Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So am I right in thinking, Dick, that the TriStars that the RAF used originally came from, was it Pan Am and um, Gulf Air or was it British no, Caledonian? Uh, no, British Airways, actually, so close right. to home, Jim. So, so, so the, you know, and obviously you, you're aware of the sort of reason that they were, you know, quite, you know, at the time sort of fair, you know, by, by the MOD standards, fairly hastily sort of arranged. You know, after the, after the Falcons War, there was obviously the, we couldn't continue with like tying hoses together to the back of aircraft that don't meant to have hoses on them and cobbled our way down to the South Atlantic that we did during the fog. Amazingly, you know, and obviously the victors that, you know, that were purpose-built tankers were coming to the end of their fatigue life. Um, and obviously we had the VC-10, but we needed, you know, we needed to bridge that 
capability gap really uh, and so the decision was made to buy um so in the, initially six second-hand ones from british airways so fairly low right. mileage sort of ones from british airways which they set about converting then at, at marshall's of cambridge and you know to give that first um you know that first tanker capability really predominantly they you know they needed to give fuel away you know and uh, and and although you know the, the the aircraft in itself is a long-range aircraft so it carries quite a bit of fuel in its normal fuel system uh within the wings you know they had to add an additional fuel capacity to that so literally all the cargo holds so the you know so where all your cases would normally be in the front and rear cargo holes were converted to fuel cells so they had so they had large sort of square tanks i think there was probably like five in the front four in the back um you know which took that up to 140 tons of fuel that's a lot of fuel to fly into some nice places and and give a bit away on, along the way you know which is always good isn't it right so yeah so it's so and, it, and obviously then you know they put a cargo door in four of them you know so um you know they thought that well you know what else can we do with the cabin to make it useful well you know there's nothing more multi-role than an aircraft that can carry passengers and freight and give fuel away out the back. So, you know, so really quite ingenious, really, and, and quite useful. So in theory, you could take a fast jet squadron, its ground crew, its equipment, and the fast jets trailing behind in a one really. I mean, in practice, it probably took a bit more than that. But in theory, you could do that, you know, with a fairly small detachment. So in what was, in its day, a state-of-the-art aircraft, and I'm talking about in its day in 1960, you know, but uh, it was an aircraft that was very much ahead of its time, really. Yeah. It's, re- it's really interesting you say all this stuff because all, all the stuff you've just mentioned about you know being able to, to trail a whole whole squadron of fast jets over like really long distances yeah. that's all that's commonplace now for voyager this is all the stuff it's doing but you're talking you're talking about it in such terms that it's like it was so new back then it was such it, a well, it, step was, yeah, it was yeah it was quite new yeah again again just to, you know the, the the to be able to have a mixture of freight and passengers in the cabin you know that's quite you know that doesn't happen you know very you know very much you know very often you know and, and not with the voyager obviously particularly um so you know, so, so it, for it able to give fuel away carry passengers carry freight and also uh, aeromed capability that's quite a versatile bit of kit really um, and so, yeah, so, it, and obviously, uh, you know, that, that conversion program to which, which put cargo doors in four of them, it left two of them that were just kind of like, um, pure tankers, but with a reduced passenger cap- capacity uh, in mm. the cabin. Um, and then, and then a little bit later on that, you know, they bought, this is where it comes to where Pan Am come in, Ginny, they bought three more, uh, aircraft from Pan Am really to add, you know, to add to a sort of passenger carrying capability um and so they bought the you know these three ex panama aircraft didn't really do too much to them you know they pretty much stayed as they were really um so they weren't modified in, in uh, particularly and and obviously they became the c2 you know tristar c2 which was the you know the sort of the main uh flogger up and down the south atlantic i've got to say to you dick that alex is like my brother but he's not like us. So I am absolutely prepared to sell him to the highest bidder because he cannot appreciate the TriStar the same way. Um, what right. for you made the TriStar quite special? Well, lots of things, really. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I have to say, it's, it's going to sound really sort of uh, cliche, but yeah, but the people, you know, two sixteen was quite a remarkable squadron. Yeah, and again, and I think Alex has already alluded to. You know, there's a lot. Oh, yeah, I think you'd said, Ginny. There's a lot of affection for the VC ten, and there's certainly a lot of affection within the Air Force for ten and one hundred one squadron, which are very, very old 
squadrons, you know, form, you know, form, you know, formation squadrons for the RAF. So, you know, so there's a lot of people look at that aircraft and look at those squadrons in particular with, you know, with a great deal of, you know, and, and even politically, they've had a lot of support over the years. You know, that Mrs. Thatcher was a big fan of the VC-10 and, uh, and, and probably extended its life beyond its... <laughs> practical, you know, practical, practicalities really, um, but yeah, and, and and people don't you know have the same you know quite the same sort of view back on the TriStar you know, and obviously there's quite a bit of rivalry at, at the time between the VC10 and the TriStar because we were doing similar things. Um, well, I want to ask actually, was technically in terms of in terms of tanking, was there much that separated them, or could they could they basically do the same the same stuff? They could pretty much do the same thing in a slightly different way, you know. So the so the VC10 had wing pods, you know, yeah. uh, and could effectively do you know, refuel two um, aircraft at the same time. Uh, you know, where obviously both of the TriStar's hose were in the center line. Center line, yeah, yeah. And obviously you can only use so one of them was really like a like a re, um, resilience sort of uh, you know, so you can use one at a time. And obviously if you you've got some resilience in if that one fails, you can deploy the second yeah. one. But yeah, you know, but in terms of um, payload and give, and you know, which is what tankers are all about, really, give. You know, the, 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 how much fuel can you give? Well, we had a, a lot of fuel to give. Was there was there quite a rivalry between VC10 and TriStar operating at the same time? Um, well, I think it, yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it's it's yes, yes, <laughs> <laughs> and there still is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually within Voyager you know, obviously you probably Jim yeah. said I work for I work for a tanker you know so even within Voyager you know there is a massive 216 <laughs> click and the, the 10 and the 101s you know, obviously the, 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 those squadrons are embedded within Voyager mm. uh, but you know amongst the engineers which is really what often what squadrons end up being about really about engineers really uh, and yeah uh, but there is a yeah there is the vc10 gang and there is a tristar gang you know but, but it's a big it's a big 216 gang in there <laughs> and we yeah you know, i'm gutted that we didn't uh that 216 didn't you know retain a sort of place in that air-to-air refueling operations going forward you know that would have been nice to carry that squadron into that as well yeah yeah because obviously it did it for you know it did it for a good long time and you know and it's got you know it's got uh, war honours to prove it you know so it was in, in in you know in the heat of operations recent operations and you know and some you know looking further back was massively important mm. massively important. So does some elements of two sixteen still exist or what happened to it? Did it just disband and that was it or did it get? Um, well, it was or? disbanded. Um, yeah, so we so we hung the standard in Bryce Norton Church, you know, and you know, well laid that you know, laid that standard up in Bryce Norton Church, but it's just been reformed again as a swarming drone. I just love that expression, <laughs> a swarming drone squadron. Now I doubt whether there's many toilets on a swarming drone, but uh, you know, so you know, not so good there. And and uh, but yeah, but at least you know the name is um, lives on, and and actually. Yeah. It, without you know, without being talking you know, rose tinted about all these old, old aircraft, kind of with the future, really, isn't it? D- drones, the yeah, future. Mm. Yeah, so unmanned aircraft uh, and sneaky beaky thing like little wasps flying around, doing stuff is where we're heading. What kind of springs to mind when you think back of your time on the TriStar? It's just those little those little quirks that the aircraft had, those little bits that you knew, you know, when you'd be damn root with it, that that that, that was going to happen or that bit would do the, th- do the thing that it always does or, you know, what are those little well, quirks? Well, it, um, you know, it was 
cha- you know, it was quite a challenging area. Any big aircraft's a challenge, you know, because because fixing anything on a big aircraft, nothing happens very quickly. You know, whatever you need to do to it requires some kind of major ground equipment to get to where it be. And if you think about the number two engine, which was like about 30 meters up in the air and nobody ever saw, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I remember used to, you know, used to do the walk around and, you know, you know, obviously you'd look at the number one and the number three engine, you know, obviously they're reasonably close to the ground. That's and so funny. Would, Cause I would have put, I didn't know that that was the order of the number of the engines. I would have thought that that yeah. top one was three. <laughs> Why? <laughs> number two engine. And, you know, and it used to say examine as far as possible. <laughs> On on the pre-flight, we, you know, I used to say number two engine, examine as far as possible. It's about thirty meters up there, and you can't even see it because it's shrouded in this beautifully contoured fuselage around it, really. And it, and it had a huge. Um, well, actually, when on the very rare occasion you did go up there, which was quite precarious anyway, because you had to climb out of a hatch of the flight deck and walk. It wouldn't be allowed these days. Walk along the whole length of the fuselage along really? the roof. So you couldn't get, get to, to it. Could you get to it from the back up the tail? You can, you know, you could, you know, you get, you get to the exhaust of it with a very, very high, but it's, this is quite, you know, this is a long way up in the air, you know, and, wow. uh, but you know, to, to get to the intake, you had to, you know, like, yeah, you had to, or to get to the, you know, the fan, the, you know, the, the intake of the engine, you had to walk along the fuselage <laughs> and, and then you would, you could slide down the, the duct, which was like, you know, like one of these kids sort of play park things, you know, where you yeah. and slide down to the engine <laughs> needless to say we didn't go up there very often uh, and you you know and it, and it kind of just did its thing up in there in the air and, and you and you hoped all was well or it would tell you if it wasn't yeah let's just talk about that engine number two uh, again i'm going to drop alex in it because <laughs> alex did say to me last week dick um we did have this conversation and he you've just spoken about the aesthetically lovely curves of the tristar yeah. which i completely agree with he said that he thinks I'm right. I'm like grassing him up now, aren't I? Um, <laughs> yeah, he said uh, that engine number two. He didn't like it because it just was like it stu- was stuck on there, and I oh, was no, like, "No way, no way." Now, if you're talking about the DC ten, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. what I said. Talk- yeah. the, you know, now, just now in. the you know the DC tens number two engine is just stuck on there <laughs> yeah, yeah and uh and kind of you know and obviously those two aircraft were rivals at the at the at the conception uh bid rivals for the, re- the replacement aircraft for american airlines you know a massive mm. massive customer uh of which the dc-10 won won the bid effectively mm. uh, and uh but you know it's in terms of aesthetic beauty alex <laughs> i mean look at those sexy lines how they've blended it into the fuselage whereas you know the dc-10 is just like yeah i think i think what it was i just i didn't know what it was i I remember seeing it for the first time on the pan at bryce i just walked out the terminal i was like you're gonna we're going off on this aircraft i was like cool and i looked at it and it looked like every other aircraft that i'd ever seen at any other civilian airport and then i was like What's that on the tail? And there is an engine. And I'm like, yeah. what is that doing there? What on earth is What's that there? What's that up on the tail? So hidden in there is this beautiful Rolls Royce RB211, yeah, which yeah, just uh, is a bag of power. So that's a powerful aircraft too. Is that you know, is so. that so? What what is it actually for? Maybe I'll what? like it if I appreciate the reason. What for you it mean the, like the, the what the shape to the end? The, the, just the, the number the, two engine in general. Like does it does it need it, it to get it, off the ground? Like is it? Uh, well, it can fly without it, but uh, but obviously it just gives it you know that uh, immense sort of power to weight ratio, doesn't it? Really, you, wow. have, you have three, you know, and obviously gives it. Um, 
the because you know you know the, to fly over oceans you have to have some you know again some resilience in terms of engines you know yeah. which, and obviously modern aircraft do fly over the atlantic with two engines you know because the, the reliability is so much greater but not so very long ago you would need to have a four-engined aircraft yeah yeah and certainly a three-engined aircraft to give you that uh, redundancy i see i guess the trend is is so much more efficient and just the, yeah, yeah. it's the technology that improves so the, the resilience is. is built into the, the and, and, and obviously power as well so the trend is a powerful engine so yeah so they can you know, obviously safely fly on one engine you know. yeah um, uh, oh so, really yeah. wow <laughs> but but you know again you know it, it you know it's not so many years ago that twin engines aircraft wouldn't be able to fly across the atlantic mm. and uh and you know, so so having three engines is just kind of a kind of natural bit of redundancy, really, isn't it? And you know, and just some power in the pocket, really. Yeah. So, so yeah. Go back to the uh, the Cyprus days when uh, it used yeah. to the the TriStar did the Cyprus job, yeah. which I was on yeah. quite a bit. You know, you on that be, yeah. those uh, indulgence flights. Yeah. Many many moons ago, quite often I have to say it felt as though uh, the TriStar was quite. I hate to even say this, Dick, and please don't I, hate I, me. I, I, I don't know where. It was quite unreliable. It was quite. It, it was almost as though it was like I used to have a, a really old Renault Eleven many moons yeah. ago, and it wouldn't start when it was damp, and it needed a really good blast of WD40 <sighs> in the dizzy cab. Yeah. It felt a little bit like that with the TriStars, and it was like you know. Oh, we're just waiting for it to almost warm up because it's been sat out for ages. Well, I, I mean, I think you know, towards the end, it, it, like any aircraft, you know, it, it becomes quite testing. You know, so uh, and in terms of you know the support for that aircraft, you know, it was testing from the start, really, because it's 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 it's, it's unlike the VC10 and the Hercule, where they've got the Air Force have got thirty or forty of them, and obviously they've got. 30 years of operating them and, and all and all that goes with that so the aircraft was like an off-the-shelf buy wasn't it you know, and which you know which makes it in terms of supporting it makes it a little bit difficult and plus aircraft only really airliners you know only have a good five years in them and the voyager's into that you know beyond that bracket now you know where you know so for the first five years of voyager they just ran on rails they nothing ever happened you know all the bits that we bolted on them you know weren't so good but all but the aircraft itself like airlines because that's what that's what airlines are buying they're buying reliability and the, and then they get rid of them at five years so five years old they get rid before any of these problems start happening well obviously we're going to in that phase of the voyager now so they so those aircraft are starting to bite back uh, and obviously the tristar was definitely started biting back at times and but you know but this is where this this is where this uh, misconception comes from i believe and, and i and i don't i don't include you in that jim because obviously you've flown in it a lot and if you're saying to me that your overwhelming memory of it not working <laughs> uh, then um then i can only say sorry but uh but yeah, I you know particularly obviously the the Falkland, you know, the, the another route you're very familiar with, Jim, that you've been up and down you know, countless times to the South Atlantic. Really challenging route, a really challenging route, and and continues to be a challenging route today. And, you know, and, and not forgetting as well, I guess, Dick. The um, I, I mean, I I uh, flew on the TriStar to Cyprus a number of times. I also flew out to um, Iraq a couple of times as well yeah. on the TriStar. And I uh, remember my first time going into uh, Iraq, uh, all the lights went off, you know, the armor on. And uh, I remember thinking to myself, is the TriStar meant to do this? Because it literally, you know, it, it went down towards the airfield yeah. at a very, yeah. very steep angle, exactly, very quick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it didn't feel entirely natural. No. Uh, but it was doing that all the time. So and, that and, must and you've got to remember, 
that you know the, the, those aircraft are not designed to do that you know and yes in the same way as the voyage is not designed to do what it does you know none of these aircraft were designed to do that you know that put into an put them into an operational you know uh envelope fly them like that tactically they're not they weren't designed for that you know so you know that must have put tremendous strain on and i know you know the latterly you know in those latter latter conflicts there were some modifications made they put body armor in the in the flight deck and underneath the flight deck floors and stuff like that you know because they were you know worried about small arms fire uh coming so that you know they're airliners you know that really just take off as lose, using as least fuel as they can fly in a straight line for six hours and then, then land again and that's all they do or you know so we're not they're not meant to be flying at a thousand feet with 90 foot hoses dragging behind them and all that we do flying in figure of eights and doing all the wacky stuff that we do with them and you know and actually that's the same today for the Voyager wasn't designed for what we do with it what we're doing with it you know with high you know sitting around with 85 tons of fuel on it and you know it's they would never do that they've never been designed for that so so even now even now we can't and obviously the same thing with the tristar then it's we kind of like flying a reliability program now for the airbus Mm. a330 in using it in a way it was never designed to do Mm. but uh yeah, but so so yes, yeah, so it's uh, so yeah, it's a very long answer to your initial question, Ginny. But yeah, so yeah, they got tired at the end. They got quite mm-hmm. tired at the end, and obviously the support was dwindling for it. And yeah, and if you got caught up in that, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> but you you love it. It's so like just just hearing you talk about it. There's so much passion there. Like, and I guess you can't fail to have that much passion about something when you've worked with something so closely. But oh no, it's brilliant. I I, I, I mean, and again, it's going to sound really shallow, Alex, but. <laughs> But it was a big white party bus, wasn't it? <laughs> it was a big white party bus, and it just took us from party to party. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and we went, yeah. You know, and I went. I had six years on it, and we went to some amazing places, and we had some amazing parties, and uh, and some great trails with you know, with you know, and and also and, and the and the the actual you know we talk about the Falcons, but it was a great route really. That as as he days you know were were brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to do a South Atlantic debt. We used to spend about two and a half, three weeks on the on on Azzy, yeah. you know, uh, on the beach, and then we used to fly down to Fulton's about three times. And yeah, but yeah, and it was great times, great people, big squadron. You know, we it probably had over four hundred people on it. You know, with obviously lots of cabin crew. It was a yeah, it was a nice place to be, and a nice aircraft to be on. And again. People have got this amazing, considering it's, a, you know, in terms of some RF aircraft, it's got a relatively short history. Mm. People who were on it remember it. Honestly, what a man, just one of the nicest people in the Air Force that I've ever met, Dick Lorty, and what he doesn't know about aircraft, in particular the TriStar. What a, what a fantastic interview. Now, I have to ask you, Alex. Oh, no. <laughs> are we, has this swayed you at all? towards my thinking of the beautiful TriStar or are you still what you know what's with the third engine <laughs> everything are you still a bit like that or have I swayed you towards the aesthetic beauty of it I don't I honestly I, I actually don't know like hearing Dick chat about it you could tell he just absolutely loved it it had its moments but I think they all do and uh, you know he had his he had his bits with it which didn't always go to plan but you both love the way it looked and I just I can't help but every time I see it think it looks a bit weird. <laughs> I just don't know what it is. I just can't help it. Like we agree that we both love looking at so many aircraft, but there's something about the TriStar, just the 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 molded curviness of its 
number two engine just makes me feel a bit weird when I look at it. I'm sorry. <laughs> it puts, well, me, puts me off. <laughs> first of all, I'm going to forgive that last comment um, because I wanted to ask you, as Dick was talking about, you know, how kind of how much of a war horse it was really. Mm. It kind of got thrashed um, doing the Cyprus run slightly, but under thrashed in a way. Um, until Gulf War, when it really did get used a lot for mm. for doing those tactical landings and stuff, did that edge you towards thinking, yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool? Or so this not. is the, this is the weird thing, right? So I've um I've been on uh, a TriStar when it's been doing the cool thing, not just like a a big passenger bus in the sky, but actually air to air refueling. And what it does is amazing, you know, like the, just the ability to air-to-air refuel is utterly phenomenal. And, and seeing it happen in action, you just don't even believe your eyes. But <laughs> we have a picture in the office at BFBS of a TriStar uh, refueling a, I think it's a Typhoon. Um, <laughs> just look at it every day in the office. And... The, the engine, just, the number two engine just sticks out of me. I really, I really cannot help find it look a bit odd. And I don't know if it's just because uh, I've also seen the VC10, which was kind of operating at sort of the same time, doing, very, well. yeah. doing the same thing. And I, and I look at the VC10 and I, and I really like the way those like four kind of mm-hmm. Thunderbird looking engines on the VC10. Molded, yeah. <laughs> Can they? I just say, are Alex, they? first are of they? all, you are officially dead to me. Um, <laughs> But before that is made official, I need to ask you, TriStar then, are you going to kemble it or are you going to keep it? I... Think carefully, my friend. I have to be honest. I've thought about this and I've listened to Dick and I've listened to you and I just, I really think it deserves a place in a museum. So I'm going to send it to Kemble because I just, I don't... I prefer the VC10. <laughs> you honestly, you get in the sea, Alex. Get in the sea. <laughs> we were friends. It was lovely. It was lo- Mav Geeks was lovely while it lasted. Yeah, or one episode before we fell out. <laughs> so, honestly, you're allowed an opinion, even if it's the wrong one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so what we're going to do later on in the podcast as well is uh, put its put its counterpart, the VC10, up against it properly with uh, uh, another guest who, um, uh, Wing, uh, Wing Commander Mike Udall, who is currently uh, Officer Commanding 101 Squadron, who operate the Voyagers, but he was, uh, for a large part of his Air Force career, VC10 pilot. So he's going to come and mount the defence for the VC10 and we'll see where it, see if we can build it or keep it in, a, in another episode. But I think it's quite fun to put the tankers of, of yesteryear up against each other for, for a bit of fun. That was great. I know I've really enjoyed it. I think I've enjoyed it, Alex, because we have been actually able to unleash on the world our guilty pleasures. I'm still not entirely happy about the outcome for the beautiful Lockheed TriStar, but I might let that one go in time. Listen, if you want to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you if you've got a bit of mav geekery going on, uh, or if something we've said this week, or maybe if you've served on a TriStar, we'd love to hear from you just mavgeeks at bfbs.com that's just about it for this week so I will say goodbye and uh, how are we going to say goodbye keep watching the skies (laughs) (laughs) bye bye